Our Father, we thank you for this time to wrap up the study in the life of Christ. And as we head toward what is an incredibly fun and climactic event in his life, we pray that you would keep us alert, awake, refreshed, and help us to understand how we can too be better disciples along with the twelve. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to talk to you as you go ahead and have a seat. I want to talk to you about the spat events. I'm just going to talk through these because these eight events, if, if you don't learn anything else, if you know what these eight events are, it will help you in your understanding of Jesus' life, okay? The two S's are easy, the selection of the twelve followed by the Sermon on the Mount. The selection of the twelve takes place after he is rejected in Nazareth. He has to have a new family in a new hometown. So he looks out into the crowds and he says, I want you and I want you and I want you. And he goes through a process of selection and then they become full-time followers of Jesus. They're later going to be called the apostles. Okay? They're given the gift and the office of an apostle. We saw that they actually started that last week in the Matthew 10 account. And then he preaches to them the Sermon on the Mount. Say Sermon on the Mount. And what is the goal of the Sermon on the Mount? To answer this question. How righteous do you have to be under the law to be in the kingdom of heaven? In Matthew 5:48, Jesus says, You must be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven as per is perfect. And he also says in verse 18 of Matthew 5, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no way get into the kingdom of heaven. So that upsets them. After the Sermon on the Mount, the next big event Matthew 12, they bring to him a mute, possessed man by a demon. And Jesus casts out the demon, and they don't deny his power. They say, you're getting your power from Satan, the wrong source. That's the unpardonable sin. That's the watershed event. And now the ministry will shift from the multitudes to the disciples, from miracles of messianic proportion to miracles for personal need and personal faith, for miracles that deal with the multitudes to miracles that deal with the twelve. He's trying to equip the twelve, and he treats the nation as though they have already committed this unpardonable act which will culminate at the crucifixion. And so after the power from Satan event, the P, parables start. We cover one eye for that because the parables hide the truth from the nation, but they give the truth to those who are his followers. And last week we talked about the purpose of the parables. It is to show what happens between Jesus' first coming and his second coming in what we call the mystery form of the kingdom of heaven. And what will happen is there's a time of sowing, there's a time of judgment at the end, and so forth. And then we, uh, the last couple of weeks, dealt with a storm stilled. Again, he's trying to deal with the disciples. Okay? And he wants them to know that he'll protect them, so he takes them into the Sea of Galilee, not once but twice, and he shows them, I will protect you, I will calm the storms of life. Notice some of these things are happening twice. I like that. Because I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes God is, is, is in my grill about the same thing that he was before because I haven't learned the lesson yet. Okay, we're going to see that again in just a minute in the new material. And then we have the, the crowd filled, which is the only miracle in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, showing the disciples this is the goal here. You're going to do the ministry. It's not me going to stay behind, but you're going to take over after I'm gone. The miracle takes place in bringing to me what you have and me multiplying that. Now, the next couple big events are the T events. The first T we're going to see is the testimony of Peter. Say testimony of Peter. And we're going to see Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? And Peter's going to say, you are the Christ. And then the result of that is your reward, Peter, is the transfiguration. So CT for what? Transfiguration. So let's do, put your notes aside, look, stand up with me, and let's do these eight events, okay? Starting with S, selection of the 12, Sermon on the Mount, 
power from Satan, parables start, a storm stilled, a crowd filled, two T's, testimony of Peter and the transfiguration. Tell that to the person sitting next to you, go. Same person you shared with earlier. Very good. I want to take you back into our last session for just a minute because the question was raised and I think it needs to be addressed. Go, if you would, to paragraph 76, the instruction through the storm. There are two verses that seem to be at odds with one another and that will be answered by this next event. Mark 6, verse 52. Verse 51, he went up with them into the boat and the wind ceased. They were completely astonished because they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were what? Hardened. Now put a circle around that and go to the, to, the, to the Matthew account, chapter 14 and verse 33. When Jesus got into the boat, it says, Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Now how can both those things be happening? How can they be worshipping on one hand and have hard hearts on the other hand? This is what I think. I think they are willing to worship God because he's protected them through the storm. They realize Jesus is the creator of the world and he will and can protect them. And with that, we're all about worshiping you. But what they do have hard hearts about is the ministry aspect. They're not quite sure about this feeding of the 5,000 business. And that brings us to our next event in the life of Christ. The next event in the life of Christ is the feeding of the 4,000. And again, I think there's a reason that this is repeated so that we can get rid of those hard hearts. In the uh, paragraph 81, in the middle of that account, is the feeding of the 4,000. I'm going to teach it to you from the Mark account, chapter 8 and verse 1. It says, In those days there was another large crowd with nothing to eat, so Jesus called his disciples and said to them, Again, we're dealing now with Gentiles. We're in the Gentile part of the world, probably in the Decapolis, where this is going on somewhere uh, down south of the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Ten Cities. Okay, Verse 2, Mark 8, I have compassion on the crowd because they have already been with me three days and they have nothing to eat. So again, the, the motive of Jesus in ministering is compassion. You disciples are going to carry on the ministry after I'm gone. You ought to look at people with compassion. There ought to be a visceral, splagizo type of response. Now, He's in the Decapolis, he's avoiding Herod, he's avoiding the, the Pharisees, and they have no food. Verse 3, if I send them home hungry, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a great distance. Again, Jesus has been living in Capernaum, which is on the main thoroughfare on one of the old ancient Roman roads, and everybody knows what's going on, and they're coming from all over. His disciples answered him, where can someone get enough bread in this desolate place to satisfy these people? See, they recognize... Uh, Jesus recognized the, the need of the crowd, but they don't quite get it. So he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They replied, seven. Then he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. After he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, he broke them and began giving them to the disciples to serve. So they served the crowd. They also had a few small fish. After, after giving thanks for these, he told them to serve these as well. Everyone ate and was satisfied. There's our word again, whether you're a Jew or Gentile. And they picked up the broken pieces of leftovers, seven baskets full. And that word baskets there is a Gentile basket. The point is they're satisfied. And those who ate were about 4,000. After their physical and spiritual needs were met, now Jesus will send them away, paragraph 82. Matthew 15 and verse 39 says, And after sending away the crowd, 
he got into the boat and went into the region of Magadan. The Mark 8 account, 9b, says, then he dismissed them. Now, when the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test Jesus, Matthew 16 and verse 1, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he said, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather, fair weather because the sky is red. In other words, you already have your sign. And they're saying, look, we want another sign as national leaders. We're trying to come to our final conclusion before we kill you. Now, they've already decided to kill him. But if you are who you are, and if we're wrong, prove it by doing something that hell cannot do. And then he says, verse 16, in the morning it will be stormy today because the sky is red and darkening. You know how to judge correctly the appearance of the sky, but you cannot evaluate the sign of the times. In the Mark account, chapter 8 and verse 12, sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation look for a sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to this generation. By the way, the last time he said, except the sign of Jonah. The resurrection is the one sign that cannot be duplicated by Satan. And then he concludes in verse 4 of Matthew 16, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. So Jesus is going to leave, and along the way, uh, they get to the other side. In paragraph 83, when the disciples went to the other side, they forgot to take bread. <laughs> I love these guys. <laughs> Watch out, Jesus said to them, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Mark account adds Herod. In Mark 8.15, Jesus ordered them, watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. Now what is yeast? In the old English, it was leaven. Leaven is that which permeates, and it is always used in Scripture of false teaching. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Herod all have false teaching about Jesus. And he's saying to his disciples, don't go there. What is the leaven of the Pharisees? What is their false teaching about Jesus? He gets his power from Satan. The Pharisees, their false teaching about Jesus was that he opposed temple worship. He's going to go down and cleanse the temple again, having done it early in the ministry. And they believe that, he should, that he's opposed to the temple worship. No, he's, just to oppose, he's opposed to their temple worship. And then Herod's leaven, Herod's yeast, was that he believed Jesus opposed Roman rule, which he doesn't. Jesus is going to tell him later, my kingdom is not of this world. And so I love this in the Mark account, verse 16. So they began, the disciples began to discuss with one another about having no bread. Really? Why didn't you keep one of the seven baskets, meathead? I'm not a very compassionate Man. When he learned of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you arguing about having no bread? You still not see or understand. Have your hearts been hardened? So again, don't be wrong about Jesus when it comes to the bread. That's leaven, the way the Pharisees and Herod and the Sadducees are wrong about Jesus. Don't screw this up. Though you have eyes, don't you see? Verse 18. Though you have ears, can't you hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of pieces did you pick up? They replied, 12. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you pick up? They replied, seven. <laughs> and he said to them, do you still not understand? You know, if it's me, I'm just pushing them out of the boat right now. Just go drown. Walk on the water by yourself. Now, in the middle of this paragraph, and it really ought to be a new paragraph, and for some reason the harmony does not work that way. In the uh, Mark account, it sneaks in here out of order, 
uh, a blind man healed. They came to Bethsaida and they brought a blind man to Jesus and asked him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and brought him where? Outside of the village. Then he spit on his eyes, placed his hands on the ears and said, Do you see anything? Regaining his sight, he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Do not even go into the village. Again, this is a messianic miracle. He does it privately outside of town. Don't tell anybody, but the disciples get to know about it. It's a two-stage miracle. I'm not sure why. Perhaps it's a reflection of what's going on in the lives of the disciples. You see, at birth, a baby can see, but he can't focus. Later, a baby learns to focus. The disciples could see that God could calm the storm, that Jesus was able to do that, but they still haven't focused in clearly on the ministry piece of the puzzle. They had full capacity, but they didn't focus until paragraph 84. We finally get to paragraph 84. Put a star by it. Put a circle around it. I love paragraph 84. It's called the Confession of Peter. Matthew 16, when Jesus came to the area of what? Caesarea Philippi. He asked, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now again, he's been testing them and testing them and testing them. If you look at the last many paragraphs, he has over and over and over been, I'm sorry, teaching them and teaching them and teaching them. I can heal the blind man, that's a messianic sign, paragraph 71. I can feed 5,000, that's a messianic sign. Uh, That's a teaching for the disciples. Here's your ministry, paragraph 74. I can calm the storm and protect you, paragraph 76. I can cast out demons, paragraph 80. I can go through Decapolis and all sorts of people need healing, and I can do that. I am who I claim to be. I fed the 4,000, paragraph 81. And then last paragraph, I healed the blind man. That's another messianic sign. We'll get to that when he does it later. But Jesus is now going to test them. And I love this about God. He teaches us, then he tests us. Then he teaches us, then he tests us. And he takes them to Caesarea Philippi. This is my favorite place in the north of Israel. Caesarea Philippi is a city built near this large cliff. This is probably 150, maybe as high as 200 feet. This cave has a spring rushing out of it during some of the year. It used to pour out of the rock. And that spring is called the Gates of Hell. Okay? In the Roman mythology or worship, the god Pan used to come up at night out of the earth through that cave. You see the water flows out here. This is one of the three headwaters for the Jordan River. And the god Pan would then hide in the woods and scare your horse, and he would panic the horse. That's where we get the word. On this cliff are built, and you can see the remains, all sorts of temples from Greek times, from Roman times, from Turkish times, on top of the hill was built a large Roman temple dedicated to Jupiter. Jesus is in that area of Caesarea Philippi, and he says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Verse 14, some say you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he says, verse 15, he said to them, but... Who do you say that I am? The Greek is very specific here. Don't miss this. He says, but you, who do you say that I am? This is who everybody else says that I am. You, who do you say that I am? Then Simon Peter answered, 
You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And again, the Greek is very helpful here. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the God, the living one. Jesus answered him, you are, you are blessed, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you but my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. Woo! How'd Peter do on the test? A plus. And therefore, my Catholic friends and friends who don't know Greek say, well, Peter now is the rock on which the church is built, and that is not the case. But Peter is the guy's name. His Jewish name is Simon, and after this he will be exclusively called Peter. The word Peter in Greek is the word Petros, P-E-T-R-O-S. It is the masculine form of Peter. Jesus says, you are Petros, but on this Petra, and that's the feminine word for cliff, large cliff, P-E-T-R-A, on this cliff I will build my church. Now what is the cliff? What is the rock? What is the Petra? It is the testimony of Peter. The church is not built upon Peter. He's one of the twelve. He's very important. But the church is built on the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the God, the Living One. Are you with me? That is the rock. That is the Petra. As opposed to the temple of the Romans built on top of the rock face cliff, Jesus is going to build his church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. I love this because this was called the gates of hell, and I really like that. Uh, we're on the offensive. You know, we get to overpower hell. It's not that hell's coming to get us. See, we're on the offense. Now, Peter, although he's not the first pope, he does get some benefits, okay? He does get some benefits. Verse 19, Matthew 16. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So, Peter, here's the keys. Here you go, buddy. You're not the rock. You're just rocky. Actually, Petros means rocky. When I take people to Caesarea Philippi, I make sure they pick up a, a little pebble. That's your Peter. That's, that's, your, that's your rocky. You, you keep that with you and remind yourself. But on the great cliff of Peter's testimony do we build the church. Now, what are the keys? He says, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you release on earth will have been released in heaven. So... Peter gets a couple things. He gets the keys, and then he gets the authority to bind and loose. Now, what is that? If you're Jewish, you know right away what that is. Keys are the means of access to something. So Peter is going to have the right to give the means of access to different groups in the church. Let me share with you how that works. In Acts chapter 2, the church starts. Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. The church is not an Old Testament phenomenon. The church starts when the Holy Spirit shows up in Acts 2 and indwells for the first time the followers of Jesus, the Messiah of Israel. And in Acts 2, one man gets up in front of thousands of Jewish people at the day of Pentecost. There are Jewish people, and he preaches the gospel. And you remember how many come to faith? 3,000 people start the church in Jerusalem. Who uses his keys to open the gate to the kingdom program called the church right here? Peter. Now, the book of Acts is the explosive growth of the church. 
by the time we get to Acts chapter 8, the church has expanded beyond Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. There's a guy by the name of Philip who was the key minister to the Samaritans. And a lot of Samaritans are coming to faith, but when the first group comes to believe in Acts chapter 8, they have to call for Peter, and he goes down to Samaria, and he lays hands on the Samaritans, and they receive the Holy Spirit by means of Peter. Peter is using his keys to grant access to the Samaritans so that we don't have two churches. We don't have a Jewish church and a Samaritan church. We have one church. They all gain access through Peter. You with me? Now, skip forward two more chapters to Acts 10. We have the first Gentile convert in the church. His name is Cornelius. Okay? And he becomes a believer in Christ. But interestingly enough, by the end of the book of Acts, there's one guy whose whole focus is the Gentiles. Who ministers to the Gentiles? Who is called the apostle to the Gentiles? It's not Peter. It's Paul. And yet, when Cornelius comes to faith, the Lord shares with him in a vision to send for Peter. And Peter comes down to Caesarea by the sea, which is different than Caesarea Philippi, and he lays hands on Cornelius, and the Holy Spirit is poured out on him and his family so that the Gentiles are saying, so Peter's saying to the Gentiles, welcome to the church. That's the keys to the kingdom. Are you with me? So Peter is not the pope. He's not the rock. But he's the guy that welcomes the Jews in Acts 2, the Samaritans in Acts 8, and the Gentiles in Acts 10 to become a part of one church. There's not a Jewish church and a Gentile church and a Samaritan church. We're all one in Christ. It's a good thing. Trust me. Okay. Now, he's also giving the right, given the right of binding and loosing. And if you're a Jewish person, binding and loosing is simply a rabbinical way of saying forbidding, that's binding, and permitting, that's loosing. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira needed church discipline because they lied to the leaders of the church. And at the hands of Peter, they were executed because they lied. Think about that. Peter bound them up and did not permit lying in the church. Okay? Now, as the church grows, okay, you have the loosing through Peter's, Peter's epistles and through the epistles of the other apostles. This is what you may do in the church. This is what's permitted. You with me? So Peter has some benefits. He's not the first pope. He's not the rock, but he's a good guy. And he's the leader of the twelve. Very important man. Now, along this, along this time, and here again, you love Peter. Matthew 16, verse 21, paragraph 85. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must first go to Jerusalem, second, suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and experts in the law, and third, be killed. I'm sorry. Yeah. First, go to Jerusalem, second, suffer, across in the Mark 8 passage, be rejected by the elders, fourth, be killed, and fifth, on the third day, be what? Raised. Ha! Mark 8, 32, he spoke openly about this. So Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Matthew 16, 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Quote, Lord, God forbid, Lord, this must not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me who? <laughs> Wait a minute, this is Peter. Rocky, our guy, our stud, our binding, loosing, permitting, keys-holding guy. He's called Satan. 
because what does he do? He's trying to keep Jesus from going to the cross. Satan's goal in history is to keep Jesus from going to the cross. That's why we have the Old Testament persecutions of the Jews. I think it's why we have the Holocaust in our generation. Satan is trying to keep the Jews from propagating because Jesus in the Old Testament has to come by way of the Jews. And if he can keep him from the cross, he can keep Jesus from winning the spiritual battle. So Satan (laughs) wants to use Peter after he's declared to have the testimony on which the church is built. So poor Peter, you know, sometimes if I'm Peter, I just want to take my disciple card, pull it out of my wallet, and give it to Jesus and walk home. I've gone from the mountaintop, now he's really in the valley. Instructions concerning discipleship, paragraph 86, Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Again, the cross, we talked about it last time, last week, is God's will for Jesus. It may not be the, God's will for you to be crucified. probably isn't. But you have to be willing to accept God's will for you. Jesus said, it's not my will, but your will that's important. And then skip down in paragraph 86 to Mark 9.1, because I love this. It's a bad chapter break, by the way. It should not be here. It's not broken up in the Matthew account, but Mark 9.1 says, And he said to them, I tell you the truth, there are some standing here who will not experience death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. And that's why our first T is testimony of Peter, and our second T is transfiguration. Jesus is going to show Peter and James and John the fulfillment of this prophet, a promise, the kingdom of God come with power. Paragraph 87 is the transfiguration. Mark 9, verse 2, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. These three are called the inner circle. He takes them alone up a high mountain and privately he was transfigured before them. To be transfigured simply means to be changed. And what Jesus is going to do here is totally be changed in his in his appearance. Verse 3, his clothes became radiantly white, more so than any launderer in the world could bleach them. That's New Testament. In the Matthew account, it says, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. In the Luke account, chapter 9, verse 29, it says, his clothes became very bright, a brilliant white. My guess is, Jesus is showing the glory of God. This is the Shekinah we talked about in the first and early sessions. He's showing clearly who he is. I put this picture up of the Old Testament tabernacle. When God wanted to walk among people in the Old Testament, they built for him this tabernacle. The tabernacle had two parts, an outer part called the holy place, and the inward part where God lived called the holy of holies. You remember when Zechariah, Jesus' relative, went in to burn the incense. There's our incense altar. And there was a veil plus the incense altar between the holy place and the holy of holies because if a man would encounter God, he would be consumed by the glory of God. So God in the Old Testament put a veil between himself and the priests. Now in the New Testament, God wants to walk among the people during the time of Jesus. And so Jesus takes on a veil. I take it that that's his body. And the veil keeps people from being blown away, knocked over, pinned to the ground by his glory. There's only twice in the life of Christ where Jesus peels back the veil. Once is here. You remember the other time? 
When are people pinned by, the neck, pinned by their necks to the ground? Garden of Gethsemane, when they come to arrest him. And he says, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. That's the glory of God. And literally, the soldiers were pinned by their necks to the ground. It's a wrestling term. So Jesus, on the mountain of transfiguration, peels back the veil, shows Peter and James and John his glory, and then verse 4 of the Mark account, Elijah appeared before them along with Moses, and they were talking. I've heard sermons about this. What are they talking about? Well, it says in the Luke account what they were talking about. Then two men, Moses and Elijah, began began talking with him. Moses is about the law. Elijah is about the prophets. And they appeared in glorious splendor, and they spoke about his departure that he was about to carry out at Jerusalem. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be given over to the chief priests. He's going to die, but then he's going to depart the earth and come back to heaven. Hey, Lord, we're going to have a great time when you get back to heaven. I think that's all they were talking about. Now, verse 5, I love Peter. Actually, let's go, to the, let's go to the Matthew account. Chapter 17, verse 4. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you want, I will make three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, again, Peter had gone from testimony of Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. I'm trying to make up, Lord. Let's build three tabernacles. What's he saying here? Is it really that stupid? No, it's perfectly logical. Because Peter realizes that he's seeing God in the flesh on the earth. And if you're a Jew, when God appears in the flesh on the earth in the Old Testament, he had to be, he had to be protected in the tabernacle. When Jesus comes back again, you know what feast he's going to celebrate with us and the Jews? The Feast of Tabernacles. God in the midst of his people on the earth. So Peter says, hey, the kingdom's come. We got the king, we got the glory, we got the Shekinah, we're rocking. Let's celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. God's kingdom on the earth is come. It's what we pray for when we say, your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Woohoo! how'd Peter do? Well, Peter sort of did all right, except while he was still speaking, verse 5, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my one dear son, in whom I take great delight. Shut up, Peter. Not quite, but that's what he's saying. Listen to him. See, Peter doesn't quite get it that before the Feast of Tabernacles can be fulfilled and the kingdom can come to the earth, Jesus has to go to Jerusalem and fulfill the Feast of Passover. In his first coming, Jesus dies as our Passover lamb. In his second coming, oh, in his second coming, Jesus comes as our glorious king to rule in the midst of his people. And we will celebrate with him the Feast of Tabernacles. Matthew 17, 6, when the disciples heard this, they were overwhelmed with fear and threw themselves down with their faces to the ground. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, do not be afraid. And when they looked up, all they saw was Jesus alone. The transfiguration is huge, folks. There's five reasons it's huge. Number one, the transfiguration authenticates the ministry of Jesus. Sorry, authenticates the message of Jesus. Everything Jesus said about himself is true, and the transfiguration authenticates his message. Second, the transfiguration anticipates the second coming of Jesus. Jesus is coming back to be our glorious king. Third, the transfiguration guarantees that scripture is fulfilled. 
we're not going to be hung up in the middle of the Jewish calendar with just Passover fulfilled. The end is coming. Every day, we're one day closer to the second coming. Fourth, the transfiguration guarantees that there is life after death. You're not reincarnated. Elijah and Moses were resurrected. They're alive right now with God in heaven. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto man once to die. You don't get many deaths. You don't get a second chance at this. And then lastly, number five, the transfiguration shows what Jesus gave up to come to earth because he loves us. He is the king. He is God incarnate. He is the Shekinah glory. And he's willing to give that up for you and for me. Paragraph 88, as they were coming down from the mountain, Matthew 17, 9, Jesus commanded them, do not tell anyone about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Jesus is the King. He's the glorious Shekinah enshrouded God of the universe and he's going to die. Amazing to me. By the way, Peter and John did not tell anyone until they write 1 John and 1 Peter if you want a great read. 1 John and 1 Peter talk about this very event, the transfiguration. It was life-changing for them. The disciples ask him, why do the experts in the law say that Elijah must come first? They'd just seen Elijah. And he said, Elijah does indeed come first and will restore all things. Underline that, restore all things. At the end of the Old Testament, it's predicted that Elijah would come to restore all things before the Messiah comes. And today in the Jewish Passover, when you eat a Seder meal with a Jewish family, there's an empty seat, the seat of Elijah. And in the middle of the meal, they will actually have the youngest male go to the door and see if Elijah is there and the kingdom might be ready to come. Well, no, wait, we just saw the kingdom. We saw Elijah. What's the deal with this Elijah? Jesus said he will come and restore all things. But I tell you, verse 12, that Elijah has already come, yet they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they wanted in the same way the Son of Man will suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking about who? John the Baptist. So John the Baptist would have been the fulfillment of the Elijah prophecy if the Jews had accepted Jesus. But because, John, because Jesus is rejected, John is rejected, he's put to death, Jesus will be put to death. And I believe, and I think the scripture bears it out, that before Jesus comes again, we'll have a new Elijah who will come and restore all things. I think it's mentioned by the two witnesses, one of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation is, is Elijah. Lastly, for the day, long day, good work. Paragraph 89, when they came to the disciples, Mark 9, 14, they saw a large crowd around them because these three guys were on the mountaintop. Woo-hoo, transfiguration. The other nine were down in the valley in every way possible. And they were arguing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were amazed and ran at once and greeted him. He asked them, what are you arguing about with them? A member of the crowd said to him, teacher, I brought my son to you who is possessed by a spirit and makes him what? Mute. So that's a messianic situation. We need the Messiah to come and loosen the lips of a man who cannot speak. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth and he grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able to do so. So the disciples can't do it. The Messiah will be able to do it. He answered them, Oh, you unbelieving generation, how much longer must I be with you? How much longer must I endure you? Bring him to me. So they brought the boy to him, and the spirit saw him. It immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell on the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father, How long? 
has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you are able to do anything, have compassion on us and help us. So there's clearly personal need here. But there's not personal faith. He doesn't say, I know you can do it. It's like, if you can do anything. Jesus said, if you are able, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was gathering quickly, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. It shrieked and threw him into terrible convulsions and came out. The boy looked like, so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took his hand and raised him up to his feet. And he stood up and after, then after he went into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we do it? This kind only comes out by prayer. It's a messianic kind. You can't do it because you're not the Messiah. The point of this last couple of verses is great for me. And it's simply this, that faith and doubt walk opposite sides of the same street, don't they? If you can do anything, all things are possible. See, if there's no room for doubt, there's just no need for faith, is there? And God says, I want you to operate by faith. God and I have long talks about this. It would be so much easier if I got to go to the Mount of Transfiguration and see Jesus clearly transfigured. And God says, no, that's not what you get. You get the book. You get me to come live in you. You get forgiveness and you get heaven, and that's enough. And it is enough. If there's no room for doubt, there's no need for faith, because you see, faith is only as good as its object. And I'll close with a story that I love to share. Two old boys from Polk County, Florida, were out in Colorado hunting a few winters back, and it was January, and the sun goes down early in the mountains, and Billy says to Bubba, Bubba, we need to get back to the cabin. It's getting dark. And Bubba says, no problem. We'll just walk across the lake. It's right over across the lake. Billy says, Bubba, you can't walk on that lake. It's made of water. Bubba says, watch. It's January. It's frozen solid. I got a great amount of ice that I can walk on. And Bubba walked out on the ice. And because the object of his faith was strong, he walked right across. And Billy was afraid. He didn't have much faith, but he walked out on the ice gingerly. But because the object of his faith was strong, guess what? He also got across the lake and back to the cabin before the sun had set. Now, Billy and Bubba went to the same cabin a few months later first week of May, and the sun is going down. And once again, Billy says, Bubba, we need to get home. The sun's going down. And Bubba says, well, we need to walk around the lake. Billy says, no, 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 we'll walk across the lake. I got all the faith in the world. It'll hold me. But now it's May, and it's been warm, and the ice is thin. And Billy starts out across the lake, and even though he has a lot of faith, the object of his faith is not sound. And so he gets wet. You see, the point is, what is the object of your faith? If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Because the object of our faith is Jesus, who came and proved through all of these events that he is who he claimed to be. And he's coming back again. Thank you, Father, for faith. Thank you for the transfiguration. Thank you for Peter and James and John, and thank you for the others who were left behind in the valley. 
Thank you that there are some things that only you can do. In fact, most things you can only do. I pray you teach us each week how we can walk more closely with you. For you are the permanent, reliable, sure, and satisfying object of our faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.